Okay, so over the course of this month of November, Carol and I have been touching into the list of the ten parami, those ten skillful qualities of heart and mind that help us to navigate life's challenges with more ease, more understanding. And so over the last few weeks, I've been focusing particularly on the parami of wisdom, which of course is a huge area of exploration, including pretty much the whole of the Buddha's teachings. So to try and keep it a bit more manageable, I've been focusing on just one aspect of wisdom, developing a wise or skillful relationship to dukkha, which is variously translated as unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering. And even within that relationship to dukkha, I've been highlighting just one aspect of the Buddha's teachings from the First Noble Truth, namely that the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. So for those of you who weren't here in previous weeks, just very briefly, these five clinging aggregates are material form, which includes our physical bodies, feeling tone or vedana, perception, volitional mental formations, and consciousness. And I'll be coming back to some of those later, but for now, just to say that these are The Buddha chose to highlight these five particular aspects of experience because they're categories that we tend to cling to, to grasp and to hold on to, or the opposite, to resist and reject. But either way, they tend to be areas of our life that we identify with strongly and take personally as being me and mine and who I am. And then construct a fixed, solid, static identity out of the flux of experience and that itself becomes a further source of suffering. So to get a a sense of how these five clinging aggregates work together to keep us bound and how they can be seen through to help us experience freedom, I'd like to paraphrase part of a talk by one of my teachers, Gregory Kramer, on the he's talking mostly about the aggregate of Vedana or feeling tone, but it's a little bit of an overview of all of the aggregates. So he says, he says the five kanda, the aggregates generally, are a way of parsing out the totality of the human experience, even though in actuality what we experience is an ungraspable, impermanent field field of flux. So the clinging aggregates are the Buddha's way of giving some names to where experience seems to gather or constellate or have a center, where there seems to be a something there, a form or rupa, materiality. And likewise, there seems to be something there clustering around feeling tone, Likewise with perception, with fabrications, the fabricating process and consciousness. The importance of that is that when something is clustered, each cluster has its compelling features and those become the locus of grasping. For example, clinging, grasping at form, at materiality. Oh, I have this solid body, there's this materiality, it's real. And it's the body, that's what is doing the clinging, and this is what I am clinging to. 
Vedana, likewise, is the push, this motivating force that energizes and keeps pushing that clinging to happen. The five aggregates, as the totality, conspire to cling to, to go towards the pleasant and to back away and try to avoid the unpleasant. But what's being forced is nothing other than the aggregates. And what's doing the forcing is nothing other than the aggregates. What is doing the clinging is nothing other than the aggregates. What is being clung to is nothing other than the aggregates. There's nothing in the middle. There's nothing on the outside. This is it. That's why the Buddha could say repeatedly, in short, the five clinging aggregates are suffering. That's the first noble truth. So the purpose of using the lens of these five aggregates is to look more closely at our experience and to see clearly when and where and how we're clinging. Because only then do we have some possibility of letting go, of release. And I've been using the term release as a synonym for ease, peace, freedom. And ultimately, the complete freedom of heart and mind that's pointed to in the third and fourth noble truths. But, and, getting to that kind of ever-deepening freedom is a process, a training. And it starts by understanding clinging and identification with experience, how this happens. Seeing how it happens, seeing the suffering of it, and seeing how to release it. So over the last few weeks, I looked at clinging in relation to our physical bodies and then last week in relation to feeling tone and Vedana, how sense contacts automatically register as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And as if that wasn't enough to deal with, alongside every knowing of a sense object at every one of the six sense doors, we also have the third aggregate, of perception or sanya, and this also arises with every moment of consciousness. So sanya is the mental function of perceiving, of recognizing, identifying, and naming what we experience, our sense objects. So if you're willing to open your eyes for a moment, if I ask you what this object is, I'm pretty sure all of you could tell me it's a bell. Or perhaps more specifically, a Tibetan bell, a bronze bell, a singing bowl. It's pretty much automatic. Just like with feeling tone, the process of perceiving is automatic. And without it, we'd have a pretty hard time navigating the world, even just functioning. But the problem with this is, again, when there's no mindfulness, we tend to take our basic perceptions and complexify, construct, and fabricate them into the fourth aggregate, the aggregate known as sankhara, or volitional mental formations. And this refers to all the different mental reactions and emotions and narratives that we tend to construct about our experience. And it's often translated as volitional formations to highlight the role 
of intention in this constructing process. So our mental fabrications are not a given. There is a factor of choice about whether and how we construct these reactions to experience. Because if there was no choice, there would be no hope of freeing ourselves. So maybe that's sounding a little bit abstract. So to try and get a sense of how perception and volitional formations work in action, even right now, we can take the example of hearing, of sound. So as you're sitting here, maybe listening to me, this process of perceiving, of recognizing words is happening. It's quite freaky when you actually notice what's going on here. So it starts in my, in my visual field right now. My eye door is registering little squiggles of black lines on a white piece of paper. And my brain is perceiving these squiggles as words with the intention that they be spoken. So from that intention, it sends signals to my body. And I seem to be using the muscles in my diaphragm to push air across my vocal cords. And then the muscles in my tongue and my lips form a particular sequence of sounds. These sounds are vibrating the air in the room and the air waves travel across the space here and contact your ear door, your ear drums. I think those are little cilia things inside your ears that vibrate. And then the brain takes those vibrations and translates them, perceives, recognizes these sounds as words. And it strings those words together in hopefully coherent sentences and makes meaning from them. So my brain is wiggling your brain across space through this action of the body and perceptions and formations all coming together. But the meaning of what I'm saying is not inherent in the words because the apparatus that's receiving them, each one of you, your bodies, hearts, minds, are not blank slates. Each of you obviously have your own life histories and personalities and conditioning of all kinds. So the words I say, the words you hear, will resonate and register slightly differently for each of you. And likewise, the meanings that you form from them will be colored by this aggregate of sankhara, of volitional formations. So you might have some sense of that, but it might be a little bit challenging when I'm speaking whole sentences that are maybe a little complicated and you're trying to follow what I'm getting at. So maybe to make it a little simpler, I'll speak just three single words slowly. And as I speak each word, I invite you just to see if you can notice that perception of hearing the sound the recognition of what each word is, and then see if you can also notice the almost instantaneous forming of sankhara around it, emotional or mental reactions to the word, conditioned by your own past history. Ready? So the first word, peaceful. Peaceful. 
the second word, pus, P-U-S. The third word, actually two words, post office. So did you notice the basic perception of each word? And then perhaps almost immediately the mind adding associations and reactions, maybe memories or little fragments of narrative about each of those words. And normally this process or perceiving on constructing is happening so fast that we can't catch it in action. And also the process is not just one single linear strand. In reality, there are multiple feedback loops that flow into each other, constantly constructing and concocting and fabricating and shaping what we normally think of as reality. And in all of that, creating a solid, fixed identity out of the flux of those constantly changing conditions. And so this is the process of identification that the Buddha recognized as amplifying our suffering. So I'd like to say a little more about identification now. And in some ways it's easier to see it playing out in relation to unpleasant experiences. So as the Buddha pointed out in the first noble truth, just because we're born into human bodies, we're going to have some degree of pain. It's unavoidable. But unless we have some mental training, most of us often amplify our pain by our unskillful reactivity to it, by fighting it, resisting it, trying to get rid of it. So the U.S. Dharma teacher Shinzen Young has a very simple mathematical formula that describes this reaction. He says S equals P multiplied by R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. S equals P times R. And on one level, that's quite obvious. The more we fight reality, the more we lose. But it's also worth pointing out that suffering is pain multiplied by resistance. It's not pain plus resistance. There's an amplifier effect that makes the suffering even stronger. And then there's one aspect of resistance, of reactivity, that enhances that even more, and that's the resistance of identification, that tendency to take our experience personally and to make it all about me, mine, who I am. So sometimes I change Shinzen Young's formula to S equals P times I. Suffering equals pain multiplied by identification. So S equals P times I, I at the center of all of our life dramas. And even though we might know intellectually that this identification amplifies suffering, still, I think many of us, much of the time, tend to operate as if we were stars at the center of our own universe or the star at the center of our own movie, a movie called All About Me. And we write the script and we're the lead actor 
and we're the producer and the creative director of our own life stories. And often we're secretly hoping for at least one Oscar, perhaps the prize for most outstanding meditator at the Forest Refuge. So we get so fascinated and enchanted by the dramas playing out on the movie screen that we no longer recognize that we ourselves are fabricating this entire experience. So in some ways, all of the different techniques that the Buddha laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta can be seen as an invitation to turn our attention away from the movie screen and look instead at the projector to explore the mechanism that's creating this whole illusion. And the five clinging aggregates are one tool that we can use to understand this mechanism of self-construction. And again, perhaps that's sounding a little abstract, so I'll share a slightly embarrassing example from my own life. And as I describe what happened, you might see if you can recognize that each part, which of the aggregates I was clinging to in this uh, story. So it was pretty early on in my practice, a few years ago now, and I was doing one of my first nine-day retreats at a center in Australia. And I think like here, we were all instructed at the start of the retreat not to go into the kitchen unless we had a a yogi job in there. And we were told not to help ourselves to any food from the kitchen, to only take what was offered in the dining room. So at breakfast on that first morning, I noticed a meditator go into the kitchen and help herself to something that I was pretty sure wasn't really offered. And there was a kind of a proliferation explosion in my mind when I saw this. Remember, I was pretty new to practice at that time, so I might have heard about seeing thoughts as just thoughts, but I didn't have any clue how to actually practice that. So I ate my breakfast, judging, getting caught in self-righteous thinking, and the next morning the same thing happened. The same woman went into the kitchen and helped herself to something that she, quote, shouldn't have, And again, my mind looped into proliferation. And this went on for a few days before I started to see how painful this was. So I decided to try and investigate it a bit more objectively. Instead of trying to change the situation, look more carefully at my reactions. And when I did that, I saw that this woman just wanted to be happy, to eat the kind of breakfast foods that made her happy. And that I was no different. I wanted to eat the kind of breakfast foods that made me happy. The only difference between us was that the kind of foods that I liked happened to be on the right side of the kitchen door. And as I was exploring all this, I started to see just how attached I was to eating exactly what I wanted, what I preferred. That attachment, that clinging to the pleasant feeling tones of the pleasant tastes of my favorite breakfast had hardened into strong preference. And then I'd identified with these preferences so much that I actually believed that what I liked was what everyone else should like too. And if other people didn't happen to enjoy a big bowl of cold cereal with yogurt and a cup of black tea without milk, 
Well, they were just deeply flawed human beings. And so as I saw this and I started playing with it, I decided to set myself a challenge. And instead of going to breakfast and taking what I always took, I told myself I would just eat and drink whatever the person in front of me in line chose to eat and drink. So if the person right in front of me helped themselves to oatmeal, then I would have to have oatmeal. If they had toast, I'd have toast. If they had tea with milk in it, then I'd have to have tea with milk in it. And I did this for the rest of the retreat at breakfast, and I was quite surprised how hard it was. I would sit and drink tea with milk in it and notice all the thoughts about how wrong and bad it was. But eventually I was able to notice that underneath all of the ideas about the experience, often the actual taste was quite neutral or sometimes even surprisingly pleasant. But still, there was one morning when I really hit my limit, when the person in front of me took two slices of white bread, put them in the toaster, and started reaching for the peanut butter. And my mind just went into overdrive. I was like, not the peanut butter. (laughs) No, not the peanut butter. I'm just not a peanut butter kind of girl. And then I thought, what is a peanut butter kind of girl and how am I even thinking of myself as a girl? That's somewhat deluded. (laughs) So I realized I had all kinds of perceptions and views and opinions about food that had nothing to do with actual reality. And these unconscious sankharas, volitional formations, were creating a whole identity that I didn't even know I was carrying until that moment. And that's a fairly benign example, but you can probably each think of examples from your own lives of getting caught in that whole chain reaction of the interplay of the five aggregates and creating an identity out of them. So I'd like to come back now to focus a bit more closely on the aggregate of perception because perception plays such a crucial role in this whole creating of a sense of self. And there's a famous sutta, the Honeyball Sutta, where the Buddha outlined how this whole process happens, specifically in relation to a question about how to put an end to conflict or to put an end to, quote, resorting to rods and weapons, quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice, and false speech, so that these evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. And the Buddha went on to describe how these unskillful states happen, how this conflict arises in terms of a chain of cognition, So this chain starts with contact or pasa, contact at any of the six sense doors, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a physical sensation, some kind of mental activity. And that contact stimulates feeling tone, vedana, and perception, sanya, which then are used to construct mental formations, sankhara. So you might have recognized those are three of the five clinging aggregates. But then if there's no mindfulness, these mental formations start spinning out into excessive thinking. 
what in Pali is known as papancha or proliferation, proliferation of afflictive mind states. So this term papancha, according to John Peacock, who's a British academic and meditation teacher, this term papancha has connotations of spreading out, the mind running amok and becoming obsessional. And this proliferation or papancha is always centered around a sense of I, of me, of mine. And it creates narratives that are often about the past or the future more than the present. And often it almost takes on a life of its own and keeps us spinning, ruminating about the same painful issues over and over again. So again, although we might lay this chain of cognition out as a series of single stages, in reality it's another of those multiple feedback loops that condition and recondition our hearts and minds. So the English Dharma teacher Robert Bayer, who some of you know, he describes the process like this. He says, the clinging mind contracts around some experience. And then, because the mind space is shrunken, the object of that grasping or aversion takes up proportionally more of the space in the mind. It thus seems somehow larger and more solid. Its size and seeming solidity both correspond to the degree of contraction in the mind. With the object appearing then bigger and more solid, and the experience of contraction becoming painful to some degree, the mind without insight in that moment will usually react unskillfully. It will unconsciously try to escape the situation by increasing the grasping or aversion in a way that only keeps it stuck or even makes things worse. For unfortunately, this further grasping keeps the mind space contracted and contracts it even more, which makes the issue, the perceptions, seem still larger and more solid, setting up a vicious circle in which the mind feels trapped. Anybody experienced anything like that? So... I think it's pretty clear that papancha is dukkha. So coming back again to the role of perception in that chain. First couple of links are contact, that's sense doors, and feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And these two are happening on a basic biological level that we can't control. They're completely impersonal. At this stage in the chain, there's no sense of me who's experiencing anything, any of this. It's not until we get to the next link, perception or sanya, that things start to get personal. So as we've seen, perception is the capacity of the mind to recognize something. And it does this by comparing whatever it's currently experiencing to any similar experiences from the past so that it can then give the new experience a name. For example, when I asked you earlier what this is, and you could have told me a bell or a Tibetan bell, a bronze bell, a singing bowl, how do you know that? Because at some point in your life history, you learn that a metal object of this size and shape perhaps with these markings, in this kind of setting, is used to make a ringing sound. 
It's not used as an ashtray or a paperweight or a dish to serve snacks in. We've learned that it's a bell. So perception relies on our capacity to remember and to name. So at this point, language and time come into the chain. And it's not a coincidence that at this point is also where there starts to be a sense of self. Someone who recognizes this is a bell based on learning what a bell is earlier. So whether we're conscious of it or not, whenever we see this object, the mind goes into its kind of database of similar objects or experiences that it has stored up over many years, and it pulls out the label bell. So time and memory are part of this process of perceiving. But in another sense, time also gets frozen through this process of naming because bell is a static concept. It's a name, it's not the actual object. The word bell doesn't change over time. A bell is always a bell. A bell is a bell is a bell. And I know it's a bell. So according to John Peacock, this is the point in the chain where our experience gets, quote, infected by the I virus. We get infected by the I virus which is inserted into the center of experience. And there starts to be a sense of me here and the world out there. And this sense of me gets repeated over time, solidified and complexified into sankharas or formations. The sense of me, my story, my history, my narrative, who I am. So perhaps some of you are thinking, well, so what? What does this have to do with clinging and release? So part of the problem with perception leading to formations is that the untrained mind tends to see these concepts as true and solid and permanent and real. It doesn't recognize that it's just a process of the aggregates coming together to create ideas about our experience which we usually then step into and inhabit as if they were reality. And this process of perceiving and conceiving and concocting into formations might be innocuous enough when it comes to simple things like recognizing the bell, but we do it with everything, including ourselves and each other. We make each other static, fixed entities, and we make ourselves fixed entities. This is a huge area of exploration. So for now, just to refer back to the example of mana or comparing mind that I've been touching into in the morning reflections. This is one obvious area where we get caught in perceiving and fabricating and creating a fixed identity, and then comparing that to others, and how painful that is. So coming back to Rob Berbea, this is how he describes the problem. He says, typically, we do not deliberately choose our way of looking at any situation. It is imposed on us by the habits of the mind. And instead of helping us to see the emptiness of things, 
these habitual ways of looking tend to solidify perceptions and compound dukkha. Most human beings will have experienced many times states in which the mind gets so caught up in a storm of reactivity that the ability to have a spacious perspective on a thing, an event, a person, oneself or other gets lost. Sucked into a vortex of unhelpful thinking and viewing, the mind is bound up in one lens, one way of looking at some situation or at life in general, utterly convinced of the truth of what it sees. Difficult as such states are, we can in fact use them to develop some insight into voidness. So again, maybe you can relate to that sense of getting caught and just seeing the world in one way. The good news is that Papantra is not inevitable. If we pay careful attention to this chain of cognition, we can see how it comes into being and we can stop the process before it escalates into full-blown clinging and dukkha. So how might we actually do that? How might we, as Robert Bay suggests, use these difficult states to develop insight into voidness or emptiness, anatta or not-self? As you can probably guess, the first step is mindfulness, that clear knowing of what we're experiencing moment to moment in the body, the heart, the mind. But to quote Sero Utejaniya, mindfulness alone is not enough. At times we need to get more actively engaged with what's happening and bring the wisdom aspect of the practice to bear. And this is where it might sound paradoxical, but we can train in using perception to undermine perception. In other words, we use certain perceptions skillfully to help to deconstruct and depersonalize what's happening. So, for example, the five aggregates themselves are a type of perception. They're a way of looking at or perceiving that helps us to recognize more clearly the unstable unsatisfactory and impersonal nature of all experience. So to give just one example of using perceptions skillfully, I think most of you have some practice with using the tool of mental labeling or mental noting. And by just simply naming or noting or knowing our experience moment to moment, that simple act of recognizing and perceiving can help to decrease identification. So we can use noting to separate the labeling of the experience from the experience itself. So for example, if we can simply note painful sensations as say unpleasant or burning or tingling and so on, sometimes that act of naming or recognizing or perceiving and labeling reduces the unpleasantness of the sensations. And what we had previously been experiencing is a solid pain can start to break down into just flickering different types of sensations. And the tendency to think of it as my pain is released.
So perceptions are not all bad. And we can see again that it's the clinging and the identification with them that's the problem. So the antidote is to stay as close as we can to the immediacy of our sense-based experience and releasing that tendency to go into thinking and proliferating about it as much as possible. So this is in line with the Buddha's famous instructions to Bahia, which I think most of you are familiar with. Bahia was a spiritual teacher who suddenly recognized that he wasn't nearly as far along as along the path as he'd thought. And this realization developed a great sense of urgency or a zeal in him. He heard about the Buddha and he apparently walked for weeks in search of the Buddha to get his advice about how he might practice properly. And according to the text, when Bahia reached the Buddha, he threw himself down and said, Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O One Well Gone, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And eventually, the Buddha replied, Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. So that's from a translation by Tanasaro Bhikkhu. And uh, the other night in the question and answers with Joseph, there was a question about translation. And so recently I found a slightly different translation of that same passage by Ajahn Buddhadasa. And I thought to read it partly because in some ways this passage is so simple that the mind can skid off it. But what it's pointing to is pretty comprehensive. So I'll read you the same passage this time from Ajahn Buddha Dasa's uh, translation. O Bahia, whenever you see a form, let there be just the seeing. Whenever you hear a sound, let there be just the hearing. When you smell an odor, let there be just the smelling. When you taste a flavor, let there be just the tasting. When you experience a physical sensation, let it merely be sensation. And when a thought arises, let it be just a natural phenomenon arising in the mind. When it's like this, there will be no self, no I. When there is no self, 
There will be no moving about here and there and no stopping anywhere. And that is the end of dukkha. That is nibbana. So it might sound simple, not always so easy to do in practice. So just to see if we can find some ways of putting this into actual practices. Those of you who were here earlier in the retreat, you might remember the wheel model of experience that I uh, shared from Gil Fronsdal. And it's uh, a sort of a diagram laying out... Uh, different aspects of our experience and he lays them around if you imagine a wheel with a hub at the center and then sort of concentric rings moving out from the center of that wheel to the rim at the center of the wheel we have the body and the breath so the body and the breath are sort of the hub of the wheel and then in the next concentric circle out we have sense contacts and feeling tones, so sights and sounds and smells and so on, and that basic recognition of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So these inner experiences are still body-based, mostly, and fairly simple. And then in the next circle out from the center, we have thoughts and emotions and our more complex mental experiences And then on the outer rim of the wheel is where we have reactivity of all kinds, proliferation, papancha. So in English, we talk about spinning out. And so in terms of this model of the wheel, we can use that whenever we recognize that we've been spinning out, use that as a signal to come back to the center of the wheel, to come back to the hub, to the body, because the body and the breath are simple and we can get some stability, just like the hub of a wheel feels like it's moving more slowly relative to the outer rim, where when we're on the outer rim, we tend to go for a wilder ride. So coming back to the immediacy of our body and sense-based experience is one way to help reduce reactivity and clinging. So that's one fairly simple, hopefully practical technique that we can use to stay out of papancha. And another possibility is to use skillful perception in the service of opening up space to release the solidity of the clinging. So as I think you've probably all experienced, when we do get caught in some kind of proliferation, Usually the body, the heart, the mind tend to feel tight, contracted, closed down, tense. And this too can be a kind of a feedback signal when we recognize that there's some sense of narrowing or contracting or tensing. Can we open up space? So I often borrow uh, this idea from Charlotte Jocobeck, a Zen teacher, She talks about creating a bigger container, A, B, C for short. How do we make a bigger container when we realize that we've got contracted into clinging? So we can do this perhaps quite literally by making more space in the body, maybe sitting up a bit straighter, opening the chest or relaxing the shoulders, taking a few deeper breaths, 
Or if that's not enough, we might stand up so that we feel more of a sense of connection with the space of the room. At times, we might want to open our eyes and visually take in the space of the room. Or even further, we can look at the sky and connect with the vastness of the space beyond this room. Use that visual image to make the mind like space, which was one of the Buddha's instructions to his son Rahula. Make the mind like space, limitless, boundless. We're coming back to what we were exploring this morning, apamana. So as I mentioned the other morning, this term apamana is one the Buddha used to describe the Brahma-vihara practices of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Because when the mind, the heart, settle more fully into these meditations, they become soft and smooth, pliable, resilient, and there's no room for the afflictive states to take hold. So practicing with these four Brahma-viharas is yet another way that we can use skillful mental perception, skillful formations, as an antidote to the unskillful ones. So again, this is a huge area of exploration. There's a lot more that could be said about all of this, but I'm aware of the time. So I'd like to close with one last quote. This is from the book, The Island, which is a compilation of sutta quotes about freedom with commentary by Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano. And this passage summarizes how developing a more skillful relationship to perception can lead all the way to the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So it says, With mindfulness and wisdom, the tendency to go out into perceptions, thoughts, and emotions is restrained. And one just allows seeing to be seeing, seeing, hearing to be hearing, etc. So the whole papancha drama does not get launched in the first place. The heart then rests at ease, open and clear. All perceptions, conventionally labeled as myself or the world, are seen as transparent, although convenient, fictions. When there is insufficient mindfulness and wisdom, the mind goes out and attaches to its perceptions and moods, the result of which is the experience of me being pressured by my life. Both an apparently solid self and a solid world have been unconsciously created, and the friction between the two is the dukkha that we find ourselves running from so regularly and ineffectively. Trying to find a me without a world that burdens it is like trying to run away from our own shadow. No matter how hard we run, the effort is bound to fail as the one form generates the other. The aim of all these teachings is to show us that the dualities of subject and object, me and the world, do not have to be brought into being at all. And when the heart is restrained from going out and awakens to its fundamental nature, 
a bright and joyful peace is all that remains. This is the peace of Nibbana. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.